am I allowed to name like other newsletters? Yeah, you can say whatever you want. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I was considering several other platforms, but I was like, I really like the clean look of Substack. And I also saw there were some writers that were starting um, things on Substack. Welcome to the Substack Podcast, where we have conversations with independent writers, bloggers, thinkers, and creatives of every background. Hey, Terry, thanks for coming on the Substack Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so you write Gen Yeet, which covers Gen Z culture, memes, and trends. Um, something I really like about Gen Yeet, just from reading through it, and uh, maybe this is the perspective of a, of a millennial coming through, but um, it seems like a lot of people that write in public about Gen Z are um, trying to make it seem really like cool and mysterious and hard to understand uh, because it's that, I think, that illegibility that builds their brand and makes them this go-to expert on this topic. Um, even when it's like this earnest take, it seems like it's it's sort of like, um, I, I get the sensation of like a bemused tourist looking at a rare species at the zoo. Um, and what I really like about Gen Yeet is that you don't do that. Um, you write these really thoughtful essays about Gen Z that aren't really trying to be like overly cool or hint that you know more than the reader. You're just like a person who understands this stuff and is thinking and writing about it. Um, does that analysis resonate? Can you say a little more about your writing style? Yeah. So what was really interesting to me in the past year since I started to create um, this newsletter was that Gen Z and youth culture on the internet at large got a lot of attention from a lot of major media publications. And it's kind of shocking to see how much more people are now covering that space. And for me, my goal has always been to kind of sort of like demystify and make it seem like, oh, Gen Z, as with all generations, are just humans. We're socialized um, during a specific period of time. But I would say that the way we see the world is also very similar to the people before us because, you know, our parents and our teachers and our brothers and sisters are also, you know, millennials, Gen Xers or boomers. And so my kind of goal with this newsletter was to kind of give it a little voice because I felt like a lot of, as you mentioned, the reporting was just sort of earnest. And within the past couple of weeks, we've really seen this sort of like explosion into the political mainstream as well with them realizing, oh, like TikTok has political power and like Zoomers know how to organize. And so my goal is to just to really be approachable and be someone readers can um, relate with as well. Can you talk a little more about the um, the move into the political sphere? I think there was like the, the Trump rally maybe that happened recently. Um, is that sort of what you were thinking about? Yeah. Um, AOC, um, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted out um, when the Trump rally sort of, there was this news that, you know, K-pop stands and like teens on TikTok kind of merged forces to reserve an overwhelming amount of tickets for a Trump rally. And it turned out to be the day of that not a lot of people were showing up and a lot of, you know, people from the resistance, people from the left were really excited to see this sort of youth activism. And I really think that was the first time that um, a lot of people came to think that, oh, these platforms and these sort of apps and communication styles can serve a political purpose. And there's a lot of fascination and a lot to dissect from that. But right now, I think the sort of um, mainstream narrative, although there have been writers who've come out and said to be wary of, you know, saying this, that one generation is politically inclined. Um, I do feel like people have this impression that Gen Z are really liberal or even really radical because of sort of the period of time that we grew up in. Um, but I do feel like 
that's going to be a topic of discussion probably in 2020 and beyond. I mean, um, I feel like uh, 2016 was the first election I was able to vote in, but 2020, there's definitely more um, younger people than me who are able to vote. So I do feel like this topic is going to gain a lot of relevancy in the coming uh, months and years. It feels like it's um, it, it. my first perception of people talking about the power of um, apps and software tools that we have to play a role in the political sphere started in 2016-ish. And it, I th- my, my sense of it early on was that a lot of it was almost like sort of like nefarious and talking about um, just like outside interference and like how are these things being like manipulated to um, to control us unsuspecting people or whatever. And uh, so it's interesting to hear your your take on the Gen Z lens of it sounds like maybe it can be like a positive thing of like, oh, there are people who like understand how to use this in interesting ways that maybe we don't understand, which is similarly still like this like fetishizing, I guess, but um, but maybe has like a more positive spin on it. Right. I do feel like it is a double edged sword, right? Because um, people are now thinking more critically about how tech platforms are being used. And um, for Gen Z, a lot of us kind of are digital natives, um, depending on how young you are. Um, you might have always been acquainted with the internet or have always had a smartphone when, even when you were like, I don't know, 10, 11 or 12. Um, I personally did not have a smartphone until I think I was 14, but still that's like for a lot of older people, this technology is relatively new. And I think we're all discovering kind of the potential of it. And uh, that's kind of where it's a little concerning and a little like, we don't know what the unknown is going to be like. And I do feel like Gen Z is on the horizon of pushing the boundaries of what can be done with being online through, you know, youth activism, kind of organizing groups, uh, using tools like Google Docs or like Google Sheets to kind of, you know, organize information and make it more accessible for other people. We definitely saw a lot of that around um, the Black Lives Matter protests with a lot of people sharing information. Um, But I do feel like a lot of these tactics and skills were also adapted from the early users of the internet, from like Gen Xers and millennials who have been on these um, possibly older platforms and platforms that have moved forward before Gen Z. And so I do feel like it's important to think of that not in a vacuum, but also around technology developing as a whole. Hmm. It's like the behavior is the same. It's just the tools themselves are changing over time. Right, exactly. Like, I feel like every couple of years kind of platforms gain relevancy and then they kind of disappear. Like I know um, around like the early 2010s, Tumblr was a really big thing. And, you know, it wasn't until 2016 when people started scrutinizing, I think, like 4chan and Reddit really deeply. But um, those platforms have always existed. It's just how much we pay attention to them, I guess, has shifted. Related to that, um, you, you talk about how the news coverage of Gen Z seems pretty overall positive at the moment, um, borderline this like fetishizing sort of thing. And um, you shared some theories and a recent issue about uh, how that relates to how millennials were treated in the media. Um, I have these strong memories of being a, a millennial when there are these like endless strange headlines about like, look at all these crazy things that millennials do. Um, and from that, I, I just assumed like, oh, it's because I'm the youngest generation at the time. And there's this tendency for everyone to like make whatever the youngest particip- participating um, generation is to like look like this exotic creature, um, but it sounded like you're expecting that this might not be the case, and this is and the the tendency to like look at millennials the way we did and to look at Gen Z the way we did is like this newer thing. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Yeah. So what's interesting was um, I feel like millennials were the first group that were really that this generational theory was really like adapted in the press. I really felt like Gen Xers had that treatment. But with millennials being on social media, you could consume a lot more media coverage and see a lot of commentary about millennial culture than I think Gen Xers did. Gen Xers usually had like a cover story and like Time or Newsweek. And, you know, um, people didn't have to associate with that label. But on social media, you're confronted with, you know, millennial bashing a lot more frequently. And I do feel like that has led millennials, especially who are the younger culture writers who are analyzing, you know, internet trends and reporting on the younger generations, like teenagers and adolescents, I do feel like there's a sense there that they want to portray us accurately and to do it well and to not undergo the same experience that they did um, from older writers who might not really understand them or social media or their habits necessarily. And so I do find it interesting that it's sort of like a balancing field, right? And no generation is a monolith. And so when you're writing about this, it's quite easy to kind of assume that a group of people operate or feel a certain way. And um, I think my theory in that in the latest newsletter was that we shouldn't always assume that these people hold these views just because um, that's the dominant narrative of it. It's sort of we should think deeper about how, you know, people born during this period of time could be very different from one another. I wonder whether like it might itself turn into this genre of journalism or coverage like I don't know what you would call it but just like generation centric journalism um and 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 like or or does that fit into some other broader category of like covering culture events or something like that but like is it going to develop into its own genre and carry some like some of these risks with it I mean, I feel like it has always been sort of a trope or a genre for culture writers. I mean, if you look back in the 2000s and 2010s, The Atlantic also did a lot of pieces like that, analyzing the millennials. Um, And now sort of the same thing is happening at Gen Z, but there's just a lot more coverage around internet culture. And that's particularly where a lot of, you know, young people are and a lot of what they're doing. And I feel like that coverage has already led to the mindset that when you think of Gen Z or a young person, you automatically think about certain things. For example, TikTok is a really big one that um, has happened over the past, I think since 2018 and onward. I find that really fascinating. Um, I do feel like um, whenever we do a culture story, you do have to think about sort of the types of people you're reporting on. And so, you know, Gen Z happens to be a default characterization in the same way that, you know, someone's race or someone's like location or demographic. So that becomes in and of itself a categorization. What are some of the nuance that you think is being missed about if Gen Z is not this monolithic concept, like what, what are some of like the subcategories that you would break it down into? Yeah, I do think um, Charlie Wartzel and his um, New York Times opinion piece that I cited in my last newsletter, his he had a really great piece called Gen Z is Not Saving Us. And he kind of summarized a lot of what I was thinking, that there is, despite this very uh, loud, there's a lot of loud liberal voices happening among young activists, and that's really promising to see. But I do believe that there's sort of this kind of undercurrent of people who might not share these views, and they're still being socialized and politicized online. I also sort of want to mention that there's been more specific 
uh, I guess there's more inclusion in the coverage that I've seen about Gen Z. There's more coverage of, you know, queer teens. And there's a lot more coverage of like black and brown teens um, from solely their perspective. And I felt like millennials didn't necessarily have a lot of that coverage. And it was still very much new. Like in doing my research for that newsletter, I researched when was sort of the first articles about black Twitter. And there was one in 2010. Their approach to it was just so insular that it sort of shocked me kind of at the rate at which writing has sort of progressed and our reporting and how we think about these niche spaces that um, the reporter is only looking into and they're not treating it as sort of like a foreign space, but they're trying to become more a part of it. And I do think a lot of culture reporters have done that really well. Um, I would say my colleague at Vox, Rebecca Jennings, does great work and Taylor Lorenz at the New York Times. Like she's very well known for her you know, TikTok stories and her focus on teens specifically. So I do feel like there are a lot of culture writers sort of pushing the boundaries and narratives of like how we should think about this generation, which is honestly a great thing. Hmm. I, I guess I hadn't really thought about that before, but yeah, I mean like the, when I think about like classic millennial type coverage, it's like the avocado toast headline or something, which is like a very homogenizing way to look at millennials and, um, and it's sort of just like, it seems weird and old fashioned now to even think about compared to sort of the way that you see Gen Z being covered, which feels more like this collection of like strange little communities and villages or something like that. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm wondering like how much of the conversation about Gen Z is being driven by, uh, by what's being written in traditional uh, journalistic outlets versus uh, independent content creators. Since you've kind of touched on, you know, like the, the Gen X time or Newsweek kind of coverage um, all the way down to uh, Gen Z coverage just being like a lot more um, driven by like what's happening on TikTok and millennial or yeah, millennial bashing and things like that. Um, where do you see this, the center of the conversation happening and like where is that narrative being driven? I really do see it happening a lot on TikTok right now. I feel like that's sort of like if you want to know what young people are thinking, that's like the first place that a lot of people think to go. And I and I do think that's a good thing, but also a bad thing, because I know there's plenty of people, there's plenty of young people who don't have certain social medias who, you know, like everyone has their own habits and tendencies. And it's not entirely accurate just to have a lens into this generation through this one specific platform. And this platform, by the way, um, you can't really search for things. It's sort of if you've been on TikTok, the For You page is sort of curated for you. And depending on what you like and what you see, you can go into these sort of like subcultures on TikTok. But then again, it's also really difficult to control. So I do um, I do think it's great that TikTok is being understood more widely, being analyzed more like a cultural artifact of this time. But I do think that if all our analyses are drawn from that one specific platform, that's not an accurate representation of what everyone is thinking. I think over the past decade, a lot of what people talk about in terms of campus culture wars, in terms of millennials, and now with Gen Z, has really sort of been a reflection of larger society. Although you do have to keep in mind that what's happening at Harvard and Yale isn't necessarily what's happening at state schools, and only a very specific percentage of um, young people go to those very elite schools that get more press coverage. Um, and so I do try to kind of figure out different ways to be in touch with the culture of my peers. Um, but it's definitely challenging and it requires you to kind of think in multiple places at once. It makes me think about how um, the extreme focus on TikTok right now as sort of like representative of Gen Z just reminds me of 
being a millennial and have been feeling that way about like early Facebook, where it's like, this is some strange platform that like none of us have seen before. And it's what all the like young kids are using. Um, are there any parallels between how like Facebook served in uh, played a role for the rise of like a millennial generation versus um, how TikTok is playing a role in Gen Z? Yeah, that's a good question. I've thought about it. On, I'm not entirely sure because I do feel like it's fascinating now that we look back on it and sort of Facebook is now a boomers only yeah. or like that's what people jokingly say it is. Um, I'm not entirely sure because I do feel like for TikTok, they're elevating certain profiles and certain young people to fame in a way that Facebook had never done. Unless you count like Mark Zuckerberg or like sort of the tech bros that kind of came out of this wave of like new technological apps and platforms. But I really do think that TikTok's role in this space in creating, um, I wouldn't necessarily say role models, but they are sort of representative figures when it comes to the public consciousness, because, you know, let's drop some names like Charlie D'Amelio, like so many people think of her now as sort of the face of TikTok and the face of like young people. She was even in a Super Bowl commercial. And I don't think with Facebook, I mean, sure, there is Mark Zuckerberg, but there was really no one that that platform catapulted to fame in that way. And so I, I don't think they're necessarily comparable, um, but it's really interesting to see the parallels of sort of millennials had Facebook and now like Gen Z has like this very new, like very much unknown app tiktok yeah it felt like we didn't really have that um that same sort of creator celebrity culture in whenever you know 2005 ish when it started becoming facebook started becoming a thing um and so there were there were fewer faces of millennials back then than uh than you can imagine now for gen z Mm -hmm. um you have this experience of like writing about a topic that you're also personally experiencing, which is probably true for a lot of newsletter writers, but it feels especially salient here um, just because you didn't exactly like choose to be Gen Z. It's something that you are. Um, and and I think it's something like a lot of writers struggle with, which is like, how do you balance analyzing the world through your own personal perspective or like things that your friends say um, versus observing and synthesizing what you're seeing in the broader world? Um, how much do you, when you're sort of like writing about this stuff, like how much are you weighing your own personal experience versus what you're trying to sort of analyze? Yeah, so it's interesting because top of mind, sometimes I realize in my first take on something might not be the representative take of everyone else. And so I always try to be very clear in my analysis. And I do feel like, you know, I'm not reporting out this newsletter. It is more sort of a conglomeration of thoughts and also like reporting done from other spaces that I link to. But um, it is something I constantly think about because I do feel like generational politics cannot be an identity. It is just a lens through which like I view the world um, and I think about how I was socialized and like the major political events that I remember. And I try to apply that to the way, you know, people younger than me, people in my generation think about the world. Um, I guess a good example of thinking about this is like a lot of politics prior to 2015, I pretty much have no knowledge of. I only can read that historically. Like, it's funny if you would talk about 2008 or like the Bush era as historic, um, that's sort of something I have to read and research about. And so, you know, thinking forward on how I should view certain events and things, I do feel like, you know, there is a tendency for Gen Z to want more, to be more radical. And a lot of, you know, a lot of people have said that, like, you haven't really experienced what it was like before. And I do think having that sort of amnesia could be beneficial, but also could be harmful. Because I do think that 
whatever analysis of the world like should always come from a historical standpoint because more often than not people you know are people and tend to repeat and do the same things over and over again and so i've kind of thought about this period of time in relation to the 1960s and the 70s and really trying to read more about that period and how you know people interacted and what people wanted to do um specifically during kind of that culture war period because i do feel like we're approaching that right now as well mm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's like you said, like having, I mean, the trade-off is like you do have this much deeper knowledge of something that like you can either really only remember one or the other, right? Which is sort of like an interesting thing about these um, temporally based topics is if you remember the 60s really, really well, then you aren't going to understand what's happening today as well. And so it, it feels like in order to, the, the contribution you can make is like having this deeper knowledge of what is happening now and then sort of just being like thoughtful and uh doing your best to sort of like draw those parallels to other things that other people might understand and drawing the connections, but it's sort of like impossible to do all those things together. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk a little bit about your newsletter itself. Um, so you're a journalist by trade and you write for Vox as your day job. Um, why did you start this newsletter in the first place and how did you settle upon the topic of covering Gen Z? Yeah, I started this newsletter, shockingly, it's been longer than a year now, but in around February and March 2019. At the start of 2019, I knew I wanted to take on a sort of writing project because, you know, the rest of that year I had internships lined up, but um, I was writing for a higher ed trade publication at the time. And then my next um, internship lined up was at the Washington Post writing for their culture. And I, and I felt like that really didn't give me space to grow on a certain beat or anything. And so I just honestly wanted to blog. And um, I came to the idea of writing about Gen Z because I've noticed a sort of like spike in generational discourse. And this was, this wasn't when people were writing about it specifically as much, but there was just sort of like, oh, Zoomers are doing this. And there, there was like a lot of like, millennial slash older confusion about um, like how Gen Z communicated or like sort of what we found funny. And so my newsletter has had a lot of iterations. It's sort of grown in voice and sort of, I also think in terms of like how I envision it to be, like my last newsletter was an essay and my one of my very first newsletters are just what I would say like brief summaries of news stories. And so I really do think I'm expanding on that as I grow as a person and um, as sort of the generation develops and, you know, cultural events happen around us. But yeah, like short answer, I created this um, last year just uh, wanting to share more about what it's like being a young person because it seems like being young is really in, which is weird to me, but I guess it's always <laughs> the case. Um, you mentioned like you just want to start blogging and uh, it is and Substack is both a blog and, and a newsletter. Um, did you consider just setting up a typical blog and why did you end up going with a, an emailed newsletter? Yeah, um, I actually felt like Substack was just about to explode, like right when I heard about it. I, I was like, I'm not doing tiny letter or am I am I allowed to name like other newsletters? <laughs> yeah, you can say whatever you want. Yeah, okay. I, I, I was considering several other platforms, but I was like, I really like the clean look of Substack. And I also saw there were some writers that were starting um, things on Substack. So I definitely saw the .substack.com a lot. And I was like, hmm, might be a good place to, you know, put it on. And I, I really did want to have like a visual collection of what I was writing about so that people would go through the archives and everything. 
Um, but I felt like starting a blog would be a little too much. Like you have to think about the design and sort of like, I, I don't know, like when you link stuff to, it gets complicated. And this interface was very easy to use. Now I feel like I'm being sponsored to say cool. these things, but no, I'm really glad, not. Like, glad to hear it. Um, so yeah, it just, it just felt easy and it didn't have to be necessarily like 2000 words per post or anything. It was just like, it could be like 500 words or like a thousand depending on your mood. Hmm. And I, I do like, there's something about your format too, that really blends the like essay sort of format, especially in like the more recent issues um, with this like personal thing where, you know, you are still sharing what you're reading and watching and consuming. And so um, it's this, it's this nice mix of both like a, this like meteor blog post type thing that I get to read. And then also a little bit of just like what's in your brain right now. Um, did you think about just like writing a purely personal newsletter versus having this like themed focused topic? Um, and I'm just asking because like there are a lot of um, I think a, something a lot of Substack writers wonder about is like especially when you're doing this as a side project and just sort of to, like have an outlet um, in some sense it is this outlet for you to just like write about something else but then on the other hand you're like building an audience around this topic so uh, did you think about that trade-off at all? Yeah I mean I was thinking about it from the angle that like I am virtually unknown. Like I have a very small writing brand compared to a lot of other people who have huge followings on Twitter. I only have around like 3000 or so um, on Twitter. And so I, I felt like writing out myself would be really boring. Like I don't think anyone would be interested in like what I'm doing. And also my life is not very like interesting. I don't have any like fascinating hot takes. So I did feel like centering it around a topic and especially a sort of salient topic that wasn't too niche that could be expanded upon like in culture and technology and memes, of course, because there's always a new meme on the internet. I felt like um, that just gave me a lot of room to latch onto whatever interested me. And my worst fear was like, oh, what if I'm not interested in writing about this topic anymore? But thankfully, um, that hasn't been the case. Like there's always been something related to Gen Z or like someone talks about the Zoomers or, you know, there's something that requires commentary or deeper thinking about like that it seems like that's sort of like how a lot of people end up building their brands is like you, you start with some specific topic because like no one knows you anyway and like no one you don't have anything to really like uh rally around until like there is some specific topic but then like as you become known for this one thing then you start sort of like expanding into like other stuff and then people come to just like really appreciate the mindset behind the person that's like covering this thing um so that's cool to hear um how did you find your first subscribers without a huge following and, and how does your list continue to grow um, I think I'm really lucky in the sense that I am sort of friends or I'm mutuals with high profile people. So um, when I, you know, tweeted out my first link, I actually got around like, I think like 50 to like 100 initial subscribers. And honestly, through the support and shares of um, writers with larger followings, I was able to kind of cultivate more um, people who wanted to read it. And I did for a short, very short period of time, I was doing interviews with sort of like, you know, um, very well known or like Gen Zers who were doing really cool things. And I, that wasn't sustainable after a period of time because of my job and sort of like how much space I wanted the newsletter to take up in my life. Um, but that was also something I thought about in kind of expanding the scope of who would read because, you know, it would be also great if I had more um, younger readers because a lot of my readers now, I think, are people who work in the marketing sphere, people in the media world. And so it does feel like sometimes on Twitter, the discussions around these things are sort of cyclical and I would like to break the cycle. 
but I'm not entirely sure how much young people are reading email newsletters, to be completely honest. Okay, that's great. I was actually going to ask this. I, I'm being like a total old person right now, but like I was, I was just like selfishly curious about like where you think Substack fits into that like Gen Z mindset, just because I think we've noticed like anecdotally probably that like a lot of our readers do skew a bit older. Um, and like my theory had always kind of just been like, well, long form writing is maybe just like more appreciated by an older demographic. Um, but you're here at Substack. So uh, yeah, like what is the like Gen Z breakdown on where Substack does or doesn't fit in? Yeah, I, I mean, I do think that there are a lot of young people who are very tapped into the world and who really do enjoy newsletters. Like throughout college, I subscribe to a lot of newspaper newsletters, etc. Um, and I do think that, you know, on a day to day consumption basis, I think it's I, I don't know. I'm always shocked by how many people do read my stuff, <laughs> which is, I guess, always a good mindset to have, but to also, you know, aim high. But I do think that a lot of what Gen Z consumes when it comes to like news and stuff does happen on like Instagram or on Twitter. Um, although, you know, I do think the original forms, I really do prize long form writing and reporting. And I really hope that, you know, that is salient like forever. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I don't I don't think that I don't think that my um, audience is a lot of Gen Zers. And I'm not sure how many subscribe to Substack, although, you know, maybe I should do a poll. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> I'm curious, but it seems like sort of intuitively uh, consistent with me. And I, yeah, I wonder, like, is it just like the youngest generation never really like uses email a whole lot or something? Like, I just I'm getting like I'm constantly getting flashbacks throughout this conversation of just like my perception of when I was sort of like graduating from college and um, and people were like the email inbox is dead and like millennials don't use email anymore. But like now I do. It's just sort of like it it happened like, I don't know, later. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, and, and maybe it's also just like Gen Z people reading about Gen Z is like it's, it's always going to be people that don't understand the topic that are really curious to understand it more so than people that are experiencing it themselves. Think that Gen Z wants to read about itself if it's portrayed in a very like interesting or nuanced way. Like I do think it's always fascinating to read like whatever take it is about your generation, especially if it comes from someone from a similar like background, maybe even the same age. And so um, I do think though there's more of like a larger fascination from like older folks who need sort of like the demystifying or like one-on-one aspect boiled down. And for a while that was like what I was doing and I realized that it was, you know, attracting a lot of like marketers, a lot of people who wanted things explained. Um, and I'm sort of rethinking sort of the direction of whether I want to appeal specifically to these folks or not. Um, like at the end of the day, I do want it to be more about um, cultural analysis and, you know, my probably I think my bigger professional goals would more align with this newsletter. Um, and it's sort of bleeding into my like full-time work as well, which I'm really grateful for. How did you settle on having like a bi-weekly writing schedule? Uh, like, and just like we, uh, a very common thing we hear from people is just like, um, you know, they, they want to be able to write consistently and they start out trying to write like every day and then kind of like flame out and, and can't hold, hold that um, schedule anymore. So like, what do you recommend for people that are just trying to write consistently, even if it's not super often? Yeah. Uh, when I first started, it was actually weekly and then it expanded to sort of bi-weekly. And then I really don't know. I think I do twice a month or like last month because of the whole 
you know, the world, the world has just been so much in 2020. So my schedule has been completely off. But I do think starting off weekly and like sort of requiring yourself to think deeply about the topic will give you a good sense of how much or how deep you want to go into it every time. Because over time, I realized that there's not enough Gen Z related topics to have a take on it every week, especially if the breakdown of my newsletter was like, two or three stories and then like sort of the memes and like what I'm up to at the bottom. Um, Over time, I think it's much better to kind of like soak it in like a sponge and kind of hold on to it a little bit. Think about how these topics are connected. And of course, they're not always connected. My last newsletter just happened to magically everything like (laughs) came together so well, but that never usually happens. And so I do feel like just um, thinking about it and sitting on it is really helpful, like just as a writer and as a thinker. Although I do follow a few great sub stacks that are weekly and, you know, a lot of these people are getting paid for it, but um, I'm always very impressed by how they're able to kind of, you know, weave together their thoughts so well <laughs> every week. Hmm. How, how, yeah, I mean, can you share a little more just about like how it's overlapped with your day job, um, professional life at all? I'm thinking about like Delia from These Links, um, if you're familiar, who she's talked about how like starting a newsletter early in her career became this like really great portfolio for her work and the other stuff that she wanted to do. Yeah, I think it's really great because it demonstrates sort of consistency and sort of voice because depending on whatever news outlet you're at, like you might not be able to write in the way that you want to. And in a newsletter, it's entirely your own. So you're able to do that. And for me professionally, what I mentioned was um, my coworkers knew I had, my editors knew that I had this uh, newsletter and they knew that I had an interest and they've read it before as well. And so whenever I had like a sort of take that, you know, maybe originally I would have written a Gen Yi on it, I could, you know, write an actual like story on it, which is really cool. Like uh, at the start of the coronavirus um, pandemic, with, um, I think we were talking about the stimulus checks and sort of how people were being sent home from college. Like those became individual pieces that ran on Vox and which was great. Like I, I spent more time, I was paid, you know, to spend time thinking about these things. Um, but that's also related to sort of my interests as well with Chen Yi so that, you know, complemented each other. Hmm. So yeah, I guess I always think of it as you have stuff to write about for work and then this is sort of like the, you know, the separate outlet, but it sounds almost like uh, the side project outlet like informed the professional work that you were doing. So. Yeah, not all the time, although, you know, it would be really cool to write this full time, but it does seem sort of daunting, you know, because I do think analysis and reporting fall into like tangential worlds, but they're like both sort of different. And I always worry about putting on the pundit hat too often because. I do feel like if you permanently put on the pundit hat, there are things you're bound to miss. And if you're sort of still very curious about the space that you're reporting on, I think this is, this applies to like whatever um, beat that someone's interested in. Um, I think it's important to always be exploring and like reading other people in that space um, who might not necessarily be like the number one, like, oh, this is the number one writer on this topic. Uh, it's always important to, I guess, be curious about something, even something as familiar as, you know, being a young person. <laughs> I wonder if that parallels what you were saying about just sort of these differences in audiences too, where it's almost, I can imagine if you're always speaking to an audience that inherently doesn't understand Gen Z and is like subscribing because they want to, it becomes a little bit more performative and pundity where you're just sort of like, it's, it's it becomes your job to like inform them versus if you're writing a little bit more for your own audience where it's like, we're kind of just like working out these thoughts and feels together. And it's a thing that we're, we like all kind of have a, a stake in. 
Yeah, I entirely agree. I feel like a lot of it is like this is happening and I don't know whether it's good or bad. And I feel like um, that's also like comes across in my newsletters. Like I don't really have takes. I don't really try to like talk down to the person, but like more of like we should kind of look at this really fascinating or weird thing that's happening on the internet. And I wonder why it's getting so much attention. Um, So I I do try to do that. And I don't also try to like punch down on things. I do feel like, you know, there there was a lot of that happening with millennials on their culture and such. And the last thing I would want to do is like do that to, you know, people who are younger than me who are on like platforms and not on. Like I was on TikTok at the start of the pandemic and then I got off and I haven't been on again. And so it's always interesting to kind of see the ebb and the flow of like what I'm interested in versus what the quote unquote dominant culture is interested in. This is actually, uh, I think, the issue that like really caught my eye because you, you said something that was just sort of, uh, you're like jaded by TikTok or kind of over TikTok. And I was just like, damn, like that's like not usually a thing you hear. Uh, like if I'm clicking in trying to see like what is what are the Gen Z takes, like you just assume that everyone's going to be like very bullish on TikTok. And I was like, oh, that's actually really refreshing that you're like, you know what? I'm like tired of this stuff. And um, it just feels very like real and honest, which I really appreciate. Um yeah, I, I try to be sort of honest and I try not to be too cynical because I do think like sometimes I, I feel like there are so many optimistic takes that I sort of feel pressured to be like, oh, maybe I should be more like edgy about it or like more cynical about it. But it is sort of like a delicate balancing act. And I think the publishing schedule allows me to reflect more whether this is like an immediate response to a greater like cultural reaction or if it's my true feelings. And so, you know, the TikTok one was one I was sitting on for quite a while, but it really took like the pandemic for me to be like, oh, I'm consuming so much of this content. I don't think I enjoy it as much um, for me to like publish that. Yeah, I really loved and appreciated that. Um, the, this is probably a question that you get a lot, but um, is there a is writing about Gen Z this like sort of inherently ephemeral thing um, where like there's a point where you you will always be Gen Z yourself, but like, is there a point where maybe like the demand for reading about Gen Z changes um, and does it feel like you're just, would you, would you classify this as like writing about Gen Z or writing about youth culture? Um, yeah. What does it feel like? Do, do you agree that it is sort of like an ephemeral thing or am I missing something else? I definitely think that it is sort of an ephemeral thing because every generation sort of like times out of interest and there is a new generation. Although I do feel like I caught it at the curve where it's heading upwards right now. And like clearly so many things are still happening because, you know, youth culture. I I don't, to be honest, like I can't think of the top of my mind, like when Gen Z like starts and ends. Um, So I don't know when um, the conversation will shift. But I do think having a pulse on youth culture while I'm young is an interesting thing. I don't know how I feel about it, you know, when I'm like 35. Uh, I haven't really thought deeply about the future of that yet. But I do think there there is a period of time, like very certain key social and political events that define every generation. And I hope to be around for the one that defines Gen Z. I think it's happening right now. Um, there might be more, who knows? Uh, but I, I do think for millennials, that was like the 2008 economic crash. That was a really big, um, like sort of like cultural parameter. Um, so I, I do think about that when I'm, you know, thinking about what are my goals with this in general. Yeah. And I think there's value in capturing a 
really like historic moment in time or a, a period that is not super well understood but is changing fast. I was just sort of thinking like as I asked the question, I was like, well, there are a lot of things that are ephemeral, like covering a war or covering a, any sort of like current events or I mean, but they serve as I think especially capturing it in these um, long form bodies of work like you are, um, it's, it serves as this sort of like capsule on this like thing that we can return to, to like understand a time, which is really important. Um, just to wrap up, um, can you tell us just a little bit about uh, what do you think like other people really misunderstand about Gen Z? Um, and also what do you think people get right? So like what are some of the emerging Gen Z themes that you think are going to define our present and future culture? Yeah, um, I mean, definitely what I want to start off with sort of like what they get right, because I do feel like um, coverage around the generation has been so much better, um, so much more diverse and inclusive than what we've seen before. I do think the tech savvy element is really important and that, you know, a lot of people my age are interested in organizing, are interested in the political process and really want to make their voice heard. And a lot of us care about, you know, inclusion, using pronouns. Um, being accepting to people from all backgrounds. Um, and so I think that general um, sort of the kids are good, the kids will be all right, that sort of sentiment has existed for, I guess, like the past year or so, I've seen a lot of that happening. I do think, though, that it's always important to sort of be skeptical of how these current events can socialize certain people. And, you know, you always have to think the millennials, there was a lot of, you know, people of color who weren't represented in um, that sort of discussion about millennial culture. So when we think about political culture in terms of Gen Z, you also have to think, what sort of voices am I not hearing? Like, is it just because they don't exist or is it because I'm not seeking them out? And so I do think that's a good um, thing to reflect on as a reporter and someone just interested in culture at large that like, there are a lot of blind spots and you have to search to make sure that those blind spots are revealed. Like, as I mentioned in my newsletter, I do think that there are more conservative leaning people. Um, people can organize for, you know, the right wing as much as they can organize for the left wing. Um, and I do feel like there is an anti-tech sentiment. I do have a significant number, I guess not significant. I have like five or six friends who are like off certain social media platforms that really surprise me. And so um, I do think there is a desire to sort of disconnect that hasn't been talked about as much. Um, although it's more difficult, it's easier said than done. Um, but yeah. Cool. Um, thank you for joining and chatting. Where should people find you if they want to check out and follow your work? Yeah, I am on Substack. I am at jenyi.substack.com. I am also on Twitter at uh, TerryGT1. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>